Hey everyone, we're back with an, another episode of Find Your Film. I'm a bit nervous because my mentor, my one of my very best friends, I my what my sensei, Eric. What is it? A sensei is the dojo master, Bruce. What do you call? What do you call him? Uh, the inspiration, the north star. What do we? What do we call this guy? I, I don't think master is a good word to use these days, but the rest of them I think are fitting. <laughs> okay, real welcoming to, to the show. My uh, my good our good friend Anderson Cowan. Co-host of the Cinematics Podcast, oh. the Film Vault. Oh, yes. Yes, sir. Anderson Cowan, yes. Director of Groupers. I thought you were yes, talking sir. about Eric with all that stuff. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I, I don't. I just assume. We try not to mention Eric because he's, he's uh, every other week, he tries to put in an, a Kirk Douglas movie every other week, and he outshines me when it comes to being a movie buff. So Eric Holmes has done a really great job. And I don't Ace know. Ace in the Hole. We got to Ace in the Hole yet? <laughs> oh, yeah. Have oh, we done yeah. Ace, Ace in the Hole? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what. Yeah, Eric when you was... said master, I just assumed you were talking about Eric. We got um, a delay here, guys. I'm sorry, I apologize. But when you said ma- when you said master, I assumed you were talking about Eric. That's all. No, no. But also, you know, you know, Anderson, I've learned a lot from you regarding indie film and all kinds of film. From Bruce Perky, he's taught me a lot about Italian Jallo films as well. I know Dario Argento, Mario Baba. So I've done outside the whole cinematics world, Anderson. I've learned a lot about, about cinema from my Bruce and Eric. But we're here today to talk about. Anderson's main cinematic obsession, and that is Stanley Kubrick. First off, Anderson. Yeah, first off, Anderson. I'm going to throw this to you. And do you remember the first time you actually fell in love and knew that Stanley Kubrick was going to be? We're talking about North Star, kind of pretty much your North Star when it comes to filmmaking and filmmakers. Uh, you know what? It's I, I'm, sadly I don't have a, a good story here. I, I, he's kind of omnipresent. Like, he was always there for me. It seems like I was always uh, aware of him because I first came across. Of Lockwork Orange when I was five, maybe six, but I, I would, if I had to bet, it was probably five years old. It was the first time I ever saw that, uh, thanks to my horrific babysitters at the time. And I remember my parents left and they said, okay, uh, enjoy. And they had a couple like Betamax tapes set up for us to watch movies that night. My brother was younger than I was. He was like two and a half or something. Then as soon as they left, uh, I remember my uh, my babysitter saying, uh, F that. No, no, no. We're, we're watching this. And then he popped in a clock with horns. And I remember I was in and out. And I was trying not to watch too much because it was really freaking me out. Uh, oh, my goodness. But, that must so, yeah. Wow. Do you guys, Bruce, Eric, do you have any clockwork orange stories? Because I remember you would know this, Anderson. I, I used to live in this area called West Hills. Okay. And there was a, a big hill. Right, right, and I used to live. My, I used to have a house on the top of the hill. I would walk from my local VHS store, and I, when my parents were gone, I snuck in an X. I believe it was an X-rated copy of A Clockwork Orange on VHS. And while they were gone, I actually traversed from my mini mall all the way, walking up the hill on a hot Los Angeles day with Mm -hmm. with the with the VHS of Clockwork Orange, and I snuck Mm -hmm. in probably 12, 13 years old, but I wasn't five. Still, it really shaped me to the miscreant I am today. Any of those kind I of... Just, yes, sir. I just I just realized that this you're not getting my good audio. You're just getting my earbud audio, and this microphone is for nothing since I'm not oh, recording uh, for my end. So sorry. That's, that's okay. That's okay. Are, are you going to put the good audio, or, or should we should we just be blessed with that audio? I, I, don't, I, I don't know. Know. I'll send you what I got, but I don't think you can mix it in So I, if it's all one, but I, whatever. Sorry. That, oh, yeah, that's I, no one I needs to see. Can, or, or, wires or, exposed. Yeah, if I send you mine, could you mix it in? No, probably not, right? Probably not. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you after. I'm sorry. I'm sorry talk- for the, <laughs> to the listeners that listeners how the sausage is made. Li- yeah, sorry. yeah, listeners. Here's a, here's a first. Anderson and I, after whenever we ta- we tape cinematics, we never talk afterwards. So this will be a first. Thank you, Anderson, for the talk after after we we stop recording. No, we talk. I always I always say get out. 
that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Uh, as I'm sweating bullets, Bruce, Eric, any any uh, early Kubrick memories before we get into our, our two films? This, this yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, The Shining, that, that was always one that was always playing in the house, usually on like HBO or something. Clockwork Orange, for that matter. And then, uh, you know, when I was in uh, high school, pretty much uh, there were three movies, Romper Stomper, Repo Man, and Clockwork Orange. No matter where I went, no matter what, anytime anyone would put on a movie, it was one of those three movies. It got to the point where I was sick of all three of them. I was like, oh, fuck this again. Come on, like literally anything (laughs) else. And so um, thankfully, you know, that was... uh, that was decades ago and I've kind of uh, got to rediscover all three of those movies and without, you know, feeling like they're thrusted, um, thrusted upon me. And so, but you know, it's uh, funny, you got sick of them, but did you realize now those three films pretty much shaped how you maybe your movie taste at an early age and still well, hopefully, hopefully not romper stomper too much. Uh, actually, <laughs> now that yeah. I think of it, hopefully Clock, not. Clock Clock Russell <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, they, they're all, all three of them are great movies. It's just, you know, the, the thing, like if you eat pizza every day, as great as pizza is, it's like, fuck, can we literally eat anything else right now? But uh, are you I, equating Kubrick's library to pizza? How dare you? <laughs> okay, you can eat steak every day. And eventually you're going to be like, this steak and these two pizzas are. <laughs> but but yeah, it, it, it was uh, so. Um, Clockwork Orange, definitely one that was on heavy rotation and uh, kind of went away from my life for a long time and then got to come back to it. So that, that, that's been kind of fun. And, and you, Bruce, uh, early, early on was, yeah, we'll get, we'll get him back. Bruce, early on, were you, uh, was that a big part of you, Kubrick, when you were a teenager, maybe even early, like uh, five when, uh, when Anderson was five? You know, like, <laughs> were you, was it like that for you or how was it for you? <laughs> well, I'm a lot older than Anderson, so I wasn't five, but it was probably about the same year. Um, no, I, I, The Shining was the first one because my friend's basement had like HBO and Showtime. So we tried to sneak in. We looked for any movie with nudity and The Shining had nudity, but that was a little bit disappointing in the nudity department. <laughs> it was a little bit messed up. But then I remember a few years later, I got the VHS of Clockwork Orange, was watching it at home. Had not seen it before, so I was watching it in the living room. Mom came by while they were beating the homeless dude in the uh, in the uh, uh, tunnel, and immediately was like, "Turn Men spinning <laughs> around the earth." <laughs> yeah. They immediately said, "Turn that crap off," uh, which I of course returned to later that night and watched the rest of. So uh, yeah, that's kind of my memory of Clockwork Orange. And Anderson, it's very interesting for this episode. Instead of going Clockwork Orange or 2001, the obvious Kubrick ones, or my all-time favorite film, and probably, arguably, Stanley Kubrick's best best film, I, I dare say Barry Lyndon, right? Right. Oh, okay. Uh, listeners, Anderson just made a, a motion, uh, north and south. But you can you can imagine what that is. Anderson, can you tell our listeners why why in the world are you choosing Spartacus and Lolita as far as our Kubrick, the Kubrick episode? Why? Why? Why am I choosing that? Because Eric told me we should choose those. But <laughs> Eric, what the fuck? Yes, I think, I think, I think they're. I, at first, I was like these two really, but then I'm like, you know what? It's a pretty good spot to start with because it's, it's Spartacus is what made Kubrick who Kubrick is, and is sort of. Well, that's not really fair, but Kubrick. It, it's what kind of birthed Kubrick into the 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 world of cinema, and then uh, it was his first and last studio picture. As a lot of you probably know, and it was the such a terrible experience for him that he fled the country and ended up making his first uh, of of many independent films. And that first one was Lolita. And today, 
if we look at Lolita or even, you know, 20 years ago when I first discovered Lolita or maybe longer ago than that, you think it's kind of tame and it's kind of cutesy and whatnot. But at the time in 1962, it was actually 1961 is when he started to make this on the heels of Spartacus. People thought that he was crazy. People thought that he uh, was insane because it was such a uh, taboo book to begin with. It was so controversial and no one dreamt of actually making a motion picture out of it. And the fact that he was going to do so it was about a, the, the most punk rock thing he could do as it's coming out. I'm independent. I'm not going to be working underneath the studio system anymore. So it, it's, it's, it's a nice double feature in, in that sense, because it shows what he did when the studio had him by the balls and then uh, what he did first on his own. Uh, yeah, not, but we should also mention that he made independent movies before Spartacus, but Spartacus was kind of where he finally broke through. Yeah. Now, a little bit of background on Spartacus, released in 1960, obviously directed by Kubrick. I think the original director behind Spartacus, I could be wrong. I didn't do any research, but out of memory, I think it was Anthony Mann was the original director yeah. behind Spartacus. Okay, Spartacus yes. won three Oscars, Best Actor in a Supporting Role. That's Peter Ustinov, very, very good. Best DP, Best Cinematography was Russell Meddy, and Best Art Direction and Best Costume Design. So I think pretty much everyone knows the story behind Spartacus, you know, centers on uh, the the titular character. And it's his journey from slave to gladiator to trying to go up against Rome. That's pretty much the story. It's based on a novel by Howard Fast, screenplay by blacklisted writer Dalton Trumbo. I'm sure Anderson's going to have some Trumbo references. In fact, Anderson played mm-hmm. this amazing trumbo situation regarding his thoughts on co-star Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis is one of the stars of this movie as well. Just to, before we, I'm going to throw this to you, Anderson, in a second. I, this is the first time I've seen Spartacus, Anderson, and uh, I can't believe it's taken me so long. I'm sure Eric Holmes, since Kirk Douglas is one of your favorite actors, you've probably seen this movie a couple of times. I really enjoy this movie. My only caveat is uh, any scene with Kirk Douglas and co-star Gene Simmons, Gene Simmons plays Spartacus's love of his life. She's a fellow slave. She's beautiful. Any scene with Gene Simmons, love her as an actress, with her and Kirk Douglas, any love story, part of Spartacus, made me want to hurl. I felt so dated. I wanted to cry. I, I'm sure because Kubrick is way more intelligent than I can ever be. I'm sure he, he even saw these love scenes, these love moments, and he probably wanted to puke. In, in his, on his shirt. Anderson, on your rewatch, your thoughts on Spartacus? Did it, does, has it grown in stature for you? No, I always loved Spartacus. I don't think of it as a Kubrick movie so much as uh, just a really good Hollywood story uh, that was made back in the day under the studio system. And it was an actual Warner Brothers direct response to uh, uh, Ben-Hur. I don't remember which studio put up Ben-Hur, but that was their response to Ben-Hur. They were trying to do their own Ben-Hur with Spartacus. And the whole story as to how Kubrick came up part to be a part of it was uh he had done paths of glory with uh kirk douglas before and kirk douglas was butting heads with anthony mann and he really wanted to get a director in there that that he could vibe with better he didn't realize that i don't know how this is on on uh, kirk douglas but he didn't realize that kubrick was the mad genius that he was and that he was as controlling as he was so he thought he would get uh this wonder boy in there that he could kind of control kirk douglas that is thought that he could control kubrick and then he immediately started butting heads with kubrick as well uh but uh where was this question uh, from where where do we begin uh oh yeah so i don't think of it as a kubrick film where i really see kubrick influences yet uh, are are in the big battle sequences which aren't a huge part of the movie but once we get there with the sheer scope and he does get some of that single point uh, uh perspective with uh some of those battle sequences with uh you know the mass armies that uh, were assembled by the romans uh that feels grand and kubrick and genius most of it though 
uh, as you can tell by seeing on your first time, Greg, uh, it feels like a pretty standard studio picture. There's nothing that would make you want to look up this director if you had no idea who it was, right? Well, I think probably the the first act was my favorite part of it when the gladiator part when he's picked up uh, he's picked up and he's uh, goes to gladiator gladiator school. Uh, and, you know, I maybe yeah, I, yeah I, I'm not gonna throw a joke. I'm I'm pretty straight guy, but seeing guys and uh, men, uh, you know, just fighting in swords and working out for an hour, I probably wouldn't be my kind of thing. But I really loved so just the character building in this. Woody Strode. You, you prefer you prefer yes, oysters, sir. is what you're saying? Uh, <laughs> yes, there's a there's a there's an uh, there's an oyster scene we're gonna get to in a second where where uh, where what what's his face Lawrence Olivier he plays Crassus, one of the Roman senators or one of the Roman power guys. He t- he asks his servant, played by Tony. Curtis, Anton- Antonitis, I think, if he likes what, what Anderson, snails or oysters? Snails or oysters, yeah. Snails or oysters. This goes back to, um, I want to throw it to you guys, Eric and Bruce, snails or oysters. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, Bruce told me he likes the entire smorgasbord. I don't know what that meant until, until I saw Spartacus. So, Bruce, power <laughs> to you on that. But uh, do you guys think that the snails or oysters line is probably something that wouldn't have been done if, let's say, William Wyler, the director of, I think, Ben-Hur, if another, or Anthony Mann, you know, you know what I'm saying? This feels like a, a Stanley Kubrick type of line that only could have been done because it was Stanley Kubrick, the snails and oysters line about, which basically is a reference to, um, Olivier is asking Curtis's character if he, if he likes men and women, essentially, the snails. I mean, given the, uh, given the uh, uh, audio that we've heard, the Dalton Trumbo audio, I'm assuming that's got to be all Trumbo, right? Because <laughs> wasn't he pretty? Yeah, I, think, uh, I think that's Trumbo. Yeah, but I mean, like, <laughs> I put a period there. You stop the fucking sentence, otherwise it's fucking garbage. <laughs> yeah, you mean Trumbo, right? Of course. So good. <laughs> but I, what, I mean, what Eric's alluding to, and yeah. I, Bruce, but, have you got a chance to see this? Like, I because I I've seen Spartacus probably four times, and I'm like, ah, I love Eric, I love Bruce, I love Greg, but I don't know if I can watch Spartacus again because it's so goddamn long, uh, and then and then follow it up with two and a half hours of Lolita again. And uh, boy, oh boy, was I excited to find this uh, uh, Spartacus on the Criterion Collection. And they have just a regular uh, Spartacus up there. They have one with Kirk Douglas doing and some some of the producers, I think, doing uh, some commentary. And then they have one where it's uh, notes from Dalton Trumbo's first viewing of the first rough cut. Uh, and they are all transcribed, obviously, and read by an actor who sounds like Joe Frank a little bit and a little bit like a. Uh, uh, Brian Cranston, this, the, the actor who reads uh, his notes, and they're very uh, telling as to how Dalton Trumbo felt about the uh, the rough cut and the directorial choices that were made, and uh, certain actors. And uh, it was it was a really really fun watch. And anyone who likes the behind the scenes of how writers actually feel about their work once it's produced, uh, I think this is probably the standard to uh, to, to take a, a listen to and watch the movie along with with those notes read. It was fantastic. Of course, Anderson mentioned Brian Cranston. It sounds like a mixture of Joe Frank. I believe Joe Frank and Brian Cranston. Of course, Cranston played Trumbo in the movie Trumbo. Bruce, Eric, your thoughts on Spartacus upon the rewatch? Were you are you as high on the movie as Anderson is? I, I, well, I, I I love Spartacus. That was like what that was one of the uh, later Kubrick movies I've seen because it just felt like homework. Um, like the I keep hearing Anderson talk about Barry Lyndon, and I got to tell you. You're not selling me on it. <laughs> like, uh, you know, like, again, I, I, I'm again, gonna have to, I'm gonna have to pull you're cutting out, Eric. You're cutting out on the Barry Lyndon thing. I yeah, don't know if I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull the trigger on it eventually. But uh, Spartacus was one of those like, oh god, I don't want to fucking watch Spartacus. But then, like, in the past couple of years, I really gotten into Kurt Douglas, and it's like, uh, it's fucking Kubrick and 
Kirk Douglas, fuck him. Uh, Dalton Trumbull wrote it. Fuck, okay, I'll watch it. And I watched it. I'm like, this movie's pretty fucking good. Like, I I, I was expecting it to be yeah. homework through and through, and it, it just kind of moves. And Bruce, you were saying how this movie is pretty much, and you know, you, you I think you took a shot on Ridley Scott's Gladiator. You're saying this is the the Gladiator that Ridley Scott wanted to do. Is that are you that high on Spartacus? Eventually, you said that to me. Bruce, in. <laughs> yeah, Bruce. When I, Gladiator I, first came out, and I was covering it on the on the film ball, I was saying the exact same thing. I said, you know, seventy. <laughs> I, or... He's agreeing with me. I'll just say that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, if if you, the first third of this movie is the good gladiator, you can watch the first third of this movie as its own piece if you want till they escape from the gladiator school, and you could make that a movie on its own. I wanted to point out something I thought about this too. We're talking about Kubrick's touch. I, I like this movie quite a bit, but I agree there's some definitely some slow parts. Every time it's a, a holiday, holiday or Hollywood set and there's the romantic stuff that's kind of annoying talking about where do you think Kubrick kind of shines through in this movie uh definitely believe like what um Anderson's saying and some of those uh giant epic battle scenes I love the the fact that there's thousands of actual extras there in formation but even more so and I would question you guys and what you think the scene where Lawrence Olivier's character crashes basically they come with their dates and they force people to fight to the death to impress their dates and the way that whole scene plays out that seems to me like kubrick right there he is basically just saying like look at these like sordid fucks who are just just having a good old time and there's even the point in that scene where they're fighting to the death and they start just talking about business like they're not they're even bo- so bored by it they're not even right. ta- like watching it and I thought that whole scene and when they're picking out who gets to fight, that all seems very Kubrick to me. I, I don't know what you guys think, but to me, well, it I, I, I wonder, I wonder how much of that though is because Kubrick, like his movies always had that kind of, you, th- you think the story is one thing and it's actually like, you know, kind of turn it on its head a little bit and kind of sort of has fun with that. But he didn't, this wasn't his project. He was hired onto this project. And granted, he could have like read the script and said no fucking way and just walked off. But um, I wonder if it's just like the universe coming together, like where it just kind of accidentally worked out that way. Because again, with the Dalton Trumbull, he's like real, real precious with his words, which quite honestly, you don't want to do that if you're a writer, because uh, sometimes other people, you know, sometimes you get Kubrick directing your words and uh, they'll make them better. But yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't have a good answer for that. But it, it, it just seems it seems weird that he would. Uh, he would be involved in this and things are very Kubrick in the, within the story, but that's, that's not necessarily something he brought to the table or maybe it was, I don't know. Well, I think there's a couple of things. Trumbo Trumbo. Okay. is a brilliant writer, obviously, but there's a couple of gutsy ballsy things that Kubrick did with, I think, even though with this is a commercial film from Kubrick, a couple of things, Howard fast, the novelist it's based on the novel by Howard fast, the story of Spartacus. Howard fast was a blacklisted writer. Trumbo was blacklisted. The fact that Dalton Trumbo's name in the middle, in that blacklist, his actual name was actually on the opening credits. Pretty much pretty ballsy for Kubrick. Bruce Berkey mentioned the uh, death death sequence, the the fight to the death sequence between Spartacus, obviously played by Kirk Douglas versus Woody Strode. Any other filmmaker, I, I argue that death sequence would have been played with Spartacus winning that match. Nope. In, in typical, I know it's a Trumbo screenplay, but I mean, I'm sure Kubrick probably massaged. I mean, this is something that comes out of Kubrick where 
the showdown between the supposed supposed protagonist and antagonist goes in a completely different direction because the hero of that moment isn't Spartacus. It's Woody Strode. He decides he decides to flip the script. That's something that Stanley Kubrick has done throughout the throughout his career. He actually makes all these creatively bold decisions. The bisexuality scene with the snake, what the snails and oysters that that was pretty. That's pretty gutsy in 60. So there's a lot of gutsy stuff that I think Kubrick did with Spartacus. Do you concur, Anderson, regarding that? Regarding He's muted. Oh, I think you're <laughs> muted. muted. <laughs> you, 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 so you, yeah, you've been muted, Anderson. I, I saw him trying to talk and I didn't hear anything. Yeah. I looked down and I saw the... Sorry, <laughs> I, I lost the connection time. for a second and then I got back and I guess it just defaulted <laughs> to mute. So, which is a good, I guess a good uh, catch, uh, fail safe to mute once you get disconnected uh i've heard horrific things that have happened on zoom so anyways uh yeah i don't know i i think that i might give that to you greg if i had not recently seen the dalton trombo uh, uh commentary where it, i watched that scene with his commentary and he didn't say anything about it and i think he might have either either a he liked that kubrick switched it and just didn't want to like give kubrick the credit or b he wrote it that way to begin with and i i, I feel like he probably would have said something uh, if it was switched around and he would have had something negative to say, because he did throughout. I mean, he was attacking Kubrick for his choices throughout that commentary. Uh, it was before Kubrick was Kubrick, obviously. You know, I I kind of think that Kubrick wasn't Kubrick until he finished Full Metal Jacket or uh, 2001, Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon to a lesser extent, and, and uh, Full Metal Jacket. Those, that's like really what made Kubrick the mad, crazy genius and, and gave him the reputation. If he stopped making movies after uh, Dr. Strangelove, I think he would have been thought of as a great director, a very good director, possibly great. And, uh, you know, he, he had some some quirky styles and whatnot, but he wouldn't have been considered like the all time great if it wasn't for the ones that he followed up with that all have different tones. But we're not talking about that right now. And before we move on from the uh, the action sequences that both Bruce and I um, noted, uh, there, if I recall, there were some cheats there. There was there was some matting and some very early uh technical tricks that they use to make the battlefield look even more uh, uh filled with people than than uh than than it really was because they just couldn't afford even that big production couldn't afford all of those but i remember reading about that i don't hold my feet to the fire there but i'm pretty sure that's the case but something that is very kubrick throughout this movie and i think if it was left to anthony mann or if they brought on another director is the comedy throughout and that is something that i really respond to with kubrick i respond to so many things with kubrick but uh he always had such a wry sense of uh humor with all of his work and uh there is peter ustinov is also gets uh credit for writing most of his own lines but what kubrick did for a long time was allow really funny great actors to kind of do their own thing you see with peter sellers a lot right after he made uh, Spartacus. And if he thinks somebody's really good and really funny and can bring their own flavor, he let them run. Uh, sometimes too too often, I think, with, with Peter Sellers. But uh, Peter Ustinov's character is, is always funny throughout this entire <laughs> movie. And thank God, otherwise it would be much more of a slog. You know, I, Eric talked about it being a, a little bit like uh, homework, but uh, I think that that comedy really helped it um, along and go down smooth. And uh, back to the uh, the fight to the death sequence, which may or may not have ended in the original script with uh, Kirk Douglas winning or losing uh, with Gracchus and Gracchus. And I, I, I lose all their names with the, the ridiculous uh, uh, Greek names, but um, them talking a great touch. It was such a great touch. And it, at the very least, Kubrick really leaned into that and said, this is my kind of scene. And it's the equivalent of people looking on their phones today, you know, uh, while crazy shit's happening in front of them. Uh, they were just talking because they were so fucking jaded, like, uh, like 
Bruce said. Anderson, you, you mentioned uh, anytime you bring up training day that uh, it was actually Denzel Washington that directed it, even though it wasn't Denzel Washington that directed it. Or, uh, yeah, or, or, we've got uh, that Poulter, reputation. Or like Poltergeist, uh, people say, no, that wasn't Toby Hooper. That was like, that was told Steven Spielberg. But, uh, yeah. I mean, Kirk Douglas, he's known as a producer, but he's because, like, you got, you got basically three people that are known for yeah. being control freaks all working together. And it's kind of amazing how that even turned out as well as it did. Yeah. It, it, I, I wish I knew how many times Spielberg guy just uh, gave in and compromised and, and allowed things to happen. I would imagine a lot of a lot of times if he just ran the set the way that he wanted to, we would have seen a different movie and he wouldn't have fled to uh, England after uh, this experience. So we know that he had to compromise on a lot of stuff. And I would think that a lot of the stuff that Bruce cited uh, as far as uh, the gross Hollywood stuff, uh, that was, you know, the love stuff. And, and, and Greg, you also said some things about that. With the soft focus on her and, and yeah. all that stuff, I would I would bet that he just kind of said, all right, you know what? You can you can do this stuff, Kirk, and I'll take this other stuff. And Kirk is such a fool for thinking he worked for an entire film on Paz of Glory with Kubrick. And then that's the guy that he wanted to bring on to be his puppet. Like, how was he not aware enough that that wasn't a smart move if he wanted to, you know, take over the set? I will say this on Kirk Douglas's defense. I think he actually made some concessions. First of all, in Spartacus, you don't get to see Spartacus actually be a badass in battle. I mean, there is that final scene, but under any other circumstance, let's say it's Anthony Mann directing Burt Lancaster or or Gary Cooper in a sword and sandal epic, you'll see them right in the middle of the fray killing 10 to 20 people. And in Spartacus, you don't really see him really uh, become this great superhuman fighter, which is awesome. He probably, Douglas probably, other than those uh, those scenes with Simmons, he doesn't have really much many lines of this well, movie. Also, to be fair, I mean... It's it's kind of hard to outshine those rolling flame logs. I mean, those oh, right. no, no, no. shows. amazing. And then, and then he doesn't give a big speech. Doesn't give the big freaking battle speech. We've come to just know, like, oh my god, here comes no. a speech. No a- speech. A- everyone else did it for him, right? <laughs> and I think that's a. I don't know whether it's, uh, going back to Anderson and what you were oh, saying. Here, I'm Spartacus. No, yeah. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. <laughs> no, but the, yeah, it's the same thing. It's a, it, you can we can credit Trumbo, but we got to credit. A Kubrick for not having that big monologue and maybe Douglas a little bit for not, I don't know, Bruce, what do you think? Not having that big monologue, you know, maybe Douglas had a hand saying, Hey, let's just tone it down a bit. Or do you think maybe give the credit to someone like Kubrick? I think it's Kubrick and and Trumbo more on the kind of the, cause this is kind of the anti biblical epic, right? This is the very like political and dour Almost, almost a parable for the whole blacklist thing, right? That's part of Trumbo's thing with this. The whole "I'm Spartacus," you have to call out your call out other people and you know sacrifice somebody. And Name names, do it. yeah. So yeah. that's pretty obvious. But I would say that the only things I read about um, Kirk Douglas specifically changing things, I read that he specifically wanted to do the thing where he hamstringed the guy, he bit him, and he specifically wanted to do the part where he drowns the guy in the pot of stew. Because he wanted, he wanted, I think, Spartacus to be a little tougher. So my guess is that he wanted to have more of what you're talking about. And and the script and Kubrick probably pulled it back because they kept, if you think about it, it's a pretty defeatist, heroic tale. I mean, the only real glory he gets is that when he's crucified on the cross, he gets to see his, he gets to actually see his child for a second before he dies. I mean, that's pretty, uh, pretty 
pretty dark you know I, 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 think, here, I think one of the one of the uh uh themes of this movie though and they they were pretty uh leaned real heavy on that death isn't the worst thing that can happen to you right, uh, like right. that, that there's a uh, more than a couple lines where it's like no just go in there they're gonna you know just let me kill you and do it quick and then we you know we, these fuckers won't have the joy of watching us fight each other just you know but that's not the hollywood version of this that you usually see right oh, once yeah. again yeah. bruce I think I think it's like Dalton Trumbo kind of bleeding through too, and it's about legacy more than it's yep. about you know like maybe you can kill my name, but I'm still making movies that people are going to see hundred years from now, so my legacy will will live on. And that's I mean, why it could be something there. That's why I think that in a way, even though Trumbo hated probably what Kubrick was doing, I think that they're kind of a good match in a sense. Like their sensibilities, to some degree, at least philosophically, kind of work here, even if it's not artistically. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That was and one of the notes that uh, Trumbo gave actually on uh, the, the the ankle, the hamstring scene. He he didn't like that the guard said my my leg or yeah. something. Or he's like, it's yeah, like, ow, ow, my leg, be ankle. <laughs> I'm like, and he's like, it should say ankle. He should be saying, ow, my ankle. And it's like such a tiny little. That's <laughs> part of the leg. It works, so you don't have to call that out. Trumbo, what was interesting is he was calling for all sorts of things that would have demanded massive reshoots with tons of extras and he was just like like writing it out as though it would be a simple fix but it was stuff that was already shot as far as you know but it's it's a little bit confusing what we're actually seeing because we're seeing something different than what trumbo was seeing at the time because he was seeing the rough cut but i don't know if they did a month's worth of reshoots which is what would have been called for if trumbo got all of his notes um uh exhausted what would have been great is if uh, they had the uh, the trumbo cut of spartacus where it was like a little picture in picture of trumbo sitting here I said leg right there. Actually, she just said uh, yeah. ankle. So uh, just just so you know, the writer's bullshit and that. No, just roll the Here, picture. I don't even care anymore. <laughs> here's another uh, example. This is big Spartacus or small Spartacus. Like he did. He went back to that a lot. Oh my god, I got I got to listen to that audio now. The movie it's ends, great. It's really great. Yeah, the movie ends with Verinia played by Gene Simmons and her baby, which is Spartacus's oh. baby. Spartacus has just killed his basically his surrogate son, uh, Anton- Antonitis, played by Tony Curtis. They actually have a uh, face-off. And the reason why Spartacus kills Tony Curtis's character, Antonitis, is because he doesn't want Antonitis to be up on the cross. So at the end of the movie, Spartacus ultimately is crucified. The good thing about it is Verinia is led out of the city, out from under the clutches of Crashes, played by Laurence Olivier. She's Verinia and her baby, they go out in the morning and she sees Spartacus on the cross being crucified on his, on his dying moments. The good thing about it is Spartacus, like Bruce says, gets to see her and the son one last time. That's a, the final moment of Spartacus. Anderson, how does that moment at the end play for you? And want, want you guys to chime in as well at the ending of Spartacus. I, I kept waiting for a use to say, hey, what are you doing over there? Get, get back over here. Uh, I, 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 it was nice that he she got uh, her little moment and- it is such a bleak ending and it is such it's so bittersweet that he gets to see you know his legacy which is what the kid is right uh for one brief moment but it's still so tragic that that's that's the only fatherhood moment of fatherhood he's going to get and that affected me more than uh, it had ever any other time i'd seen it because this is the first time i'd seen it since becoming a parent and i've said numerous times that my movie uh viewing experiences weren't going to change at all once i became a dad but that was me just being stupid because I mean, it's really hard not to change the way you consume things when your whole life view has changed. So yeah, I, I put myself in that place up on that, on that crucifix in that moment. And I don't want to say I got, I got teary eyed, but it, it affected me more emotionally than it ever had before. Bruce, do you concur? You're a dad. Do you concur on the ending? Yeah. Yeah. I liked it. Um, 
for many of the same reasons, and, and I'm a sucker for a bleak ending a lot of times too. One thing I also wanted to mention about that ending is I had read, I don't know if you guys read this, that I think the original cut, they didn't have the spot where she's like begging for him to die. And I thought that was a really, uh, of the scenes they have together, that might be the best one. <laughs> I, I agree. That's a great scene. That is a great scene. Because she's begging for him to die, just die. And they cut that out because, of course, it was too bleak. But that was like one of the true, like, actual honest kind of moments in that in that last so- shot. And then to have her, you know, roll away with just the the line of crosses going off into the distance and all the way up the hill. I mean, it's pretty epic. You agree, Eric? Epic ending. Your your thumbs up on yeah. that on the ending. Yeah, I, I I like that. I mean, it's it's got the it's kind of the uh, uh, you can have your cake and eat it too, or uh, you know, you got the bleak ending, but the the character still gets that 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 uh, kind of happy ending moment, even though it's like he's in the middle of being crucified and he's dying. But like you get that, you know, uh, it's kind of like when you make a, a barbecue sauce. You know, you mix it and it's it's just a little too. It's a little too bitter, but you just got to add a little bit of molasses and it just make it just right. And I, th- I think it worked out pretty good. Very cool. Okay, so we're going to move to Lolita in a second. But before we do that, final thoughts, Anderson, on Spartacus. Any just random thoughts regarding Spartacus? I like Paz the Glory more. Very good. Ooh, you like Paz the- Bruce, Eric, you you agree? I, yeah, well, I, oh. I think think that might be my favorite movie. His, huh? <laughs> really? Actually. Okay. Paz, Paz the Glory is sweet. Okay, <laughs> Eric Holmes. You're disqualified. Hashtag Barry Lyndon. Go see that movie immediately. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, so now we're we're now at 1962, as Anderson says, and maybe I'm, I'm misquoting him, but after the studio system, after his, it's not a debacle. After his experience with the studio system, he decides he wants to make movies, sort of with his own vision. He moves, I believe, Anderson to, to England. They make this movie called Lolita. It's based on the 1955 novel novel by Vladimir Nabokov. And considering it's considered one of the 20th century's best written novels, I I actually I've read I've read about half of it. It's a beautiful, beautiful novel. I don't know why I've, I, I, <laughs> I can't I, even finish it, Greg. Because because I, I you know what? And this is probably this is probably why I'm still single is because I I, I really can't finish on it, finish anything. So that's that's probably why I'm still uh, that. And one of these days I'm going to get to Lolita, um, the book. Here's here's a big reveal. I thought this movie was, I saw this when I was in my 20s, and it's basically about this middle-aged college professor named uh, Humbert Humbert, played by James Mason, who falls in love with a, it says here on IMDb, 14-year-old nymphette, but actually, I think in the books, she was 12. She was 12. But in this in this, in this uh, version, the Kubrick version, she's 14. She's played, She's her name is Lolita. Yeah, finally. Lolita. <laughs> and, and yeah, yeah. And she's played... By Sue Lyon. So he, he falls in love with her and Shirley and the mother is uh, played by Shelley Winters. That is the <laughs> yes, that is the premise of the movie. That and I I'll get to you guys in a second. I think this movie has really aged well. I, I it's I was so blown away by how, how amazing this movie is. Also co-starring in this movie is Claire Quilt is is uh, Peter Sellers as Claire Quilty, sort of the antagonist in the movie who who ends up probably well this is spo- this is a spoiler episode anyway who ends up squiring away Lolita taking Lolita away from Humbert Humbert so that is the premise sto- story behind Lolita Anderson did this movie has this movie aged like fine wine for you or has it actually aged in a negative fashion for you No considering uh, the subject matter and you know going this sounds horrible but going from 12 to 14 might not seem like a lot but it's actually a world of difference uh, with a lot of uh, you know young people so uh, i i think that 
in today's, you know, very, very uptight and sensitive and you know, rightfully so in, in many cases. But if, if you if you told me that in a, if I lived in a vacuum and if you told me there was this movie from 1962 that was all about a, a middle aged man falling in love with a 14 year old girl and it's actually funny and reverent and you can learn something from it and it's a great story. I would think like, wow, I bet that movie didn't age well. But you're right. It does. You can watch it today. Still learn plenty from it. There's still plenty of things with that Kubrick uh, rise sense of humor all throughout. I mean, this movie is funnier than I remember it being. I mean, it is. I, I haven't seen it in 10 years. And it, it's just funny throughout. They're just it, his reactions, him being crushed right to the very bleak ending. It's just funny. And I, I, I have to think that Kubrick realized how, how funny the movie was oh, yeah. when making it. But yeah, I think it aged well. Can this movie be made today with a 14-year-old? Yeah. You think it, so? It, it, it absolutely could. This is like, uh, as far as Woody Allen biopics go, this thing nails it. <laughs> okay. I think Sam Neill would be a perfect Humper Humper. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sam Neill would be perfect. And probably someone like the lead actress from, what's her, what's her, uh, Bruce, you're, you're good. Stranger Things. Help me out on that. The lead actress from Stranger Things. Oh, I guess, gosh. T- talent-wise, yeah. Number 11. Yeah. Number eleven. Let's just Bobby Millie. Me. Bobby Bobby Millie Brown. Yeah. Do you think maybe Anderson she should be good? No. Or maybe she's no. Too because old. I've I've seen her in movies where she has to speak and she's not 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 good. She's only good oh. in uh, uh, Stranger Things because she has no lines. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm going to cut exposed. that. I'm going to cut that out, Anderson, because we're we're going to try to get a sponsorship from Netflix. So uh, I'm going to cut that out. Thank thank you so much for that comment. All right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So Bruce, Eric, has this movie aged well for you? Is it more potent yeah. today? Yeah. Th- this movie's freaking hilarious. Um, I mean, the, just opening up when uh, Woody Allen's uh, about to kill Peter Sellers, and Peter Sellers just doesn't give two fucks about anything. He's like, yeah, yeah, we're going to play ping pong. It's like, I'm here to kill you. It's like, yeah, yeah, here, here's your paddle. <laughs> you know, come on, let's go. <laughs> you know, the, the movie goes long, and it does the uh, uh, Woody Allen being a creep, and then and then it gets to the end, and then it ends, right, where like, it's not the first movie that did that and probably won't be the last movie they did that. But this is this is the kind of movie that I could put on repeat because the end just go like it just melds right into the beginning. So so well, it's just kind of uh, I, I could just put this movie on a loop. It's hilarious and it's definitely insightful. And the, the cool thing about the Lolita character is that like she's, you know, she is a she is a child, and but you get to see her kind of grow yeah, yeah, yes, you, but, but you get to see her grow, and and my niece is uh, kind of getting that age, so I kind of see a little bit of her and Lolita, not the not the sexual stuff, but like the uh, you know how she's kind of sort of becoming an adult and you know mentally changing, and uh, I thought they did that really well in this movie too, and I'm guessing a lot of that credit probably has to go towards the actress whose name I cannot remember because I suck at life. Sue Lyon. Sue Lyon. She's very good. She's, Sue Lyon's very good in this movie. Here's a, here's a sad thing about Sue Lyon. She was, she was 14 when she did Lolita. She passed away in nine, 2019 at the age of 73. She, in her final days, she was living in, assist, in an assisted living home in North Hollywood. After the success of Lolita, her, her life, her career went downhill. She never became the star that she wanted to be. She married, I think, four, to, four or five times. And when they did a remake of Lolita directed by Adrian Lyon in 1997, there was a round of interviews with Sue Lyon and Sue Lyon was saying, right. Oh, uh, Anderson. I just saw Anderson do a thumbs down on Adrian Lyons, Lolita. I, Anderson, by the way, a very good friend of mine. I hope he's not hearing that. How I think that the remake of Lolita is, is, it's quite almost a masterpiece with Jeremy Irons. That's a double, double that's a double <laughs> finger. Thank you, Anderson. You're, you're a good buddy. But again, it, it goes to the point that, um, 
she was 14 when she was doing this. And I wanted to actually throw this to you, Bruce. Do you, th- do you think casting a 14-year-old Sue Lyon in a Stanley Kubrick film where she is pretty much, I guess, from James Mason's perspective, the object of, of desire, the male gaze is upon her. And even as go- good as that close set is, after the success of Lolita at 14 to be sexualized, and this is something, unfortunately, as a stupid male, I did not think recently until re-watching Lolita. Does, does any of that stuff go through your mind as far as the effects that it had on someone like Sue Lyon? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's a, a valid question. And they've, that there's been a, quite a few actresses, really young actresses. I mean, obviously, you got um, Jodie Foster is a real common one you come up with or um, Brooke Shields. You know, that's kind of Natalie come up. Portman. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there's a good question to that. I mean, I don't think this movie is irresponsible with it as far as that goes because that's kind of the whole point of the movie i i I would say that i was struck on this viewing of it i mean i think it's kind of interesting because if you watch it the first time you're really stuck with the lolita and him and his obsession and all that stuff this this is maybe my third time watching it and i'm this time i was really struck by how this is a great satire on the the fakeness of the American version of this fifties idyllic life. And it is all about how much bullshit that is. And throughout, I mean, it's funny too, funny as hell, but I mean, just the mom who's really just horrible and you've got the friends who are basically swingers and they're trying to constantly like, you know, kind of worm their way in there too. You've got Quilty who's just, you know, predatory from the beginning throughout you see people who are just, disgusting and it's almost blue velvet level of kind of de um you know dismantling that you know 50s version of americana and i think it's really great about that and doing it in a funny way and doing it in a subversive way and then having a main character like played by james mason who was despicable despicable uh, throughout i mean you got the scene where he's trying to decide like how how can i kill her how can I kill her and get away with this gun, you know? And then, and there's that whole like extended sequence, which is hilarious. And then he gets, it gets thrown into the air because she's discovered the, you know, the diary and it, and he's lucky that she dies. I mean, it's, it's but something his, to Him behold. going back to that scene. I, I don't remember that being as funny the last time I saw it where he's downstairs making her a drink and trying to come up with this cockamamie story about, yes. how, oh, it's just literature that I'm writing. And a lot of time I use names that are you know, people that I'm familiar with. <laughs> I mean, it was yeah. such a weak, weak excuse. It was, oh, it was, that's, it's akin I to, like, disagree. You, you hear I about. Dis- I do that all the time. I would do that all the time. That's a the, valid excuse, Anderson. I've seen. Especially if Shelly Winters was my wife, I would say the same thing. So. If, if I heard that, I would have chewed down vehemently. <laughs> I think it was Dennis Rodman. I think he was with uh, Carmen Electra, and yes. she walked in on him, and there was a, and a woman literally riding him in bed. And, uh, and Dennis Rodman said, uh, it's not what it looks like. I mean, it was as bad as that. <laughs> it was as bad as that. But uh, can we go back to the very beginning of, of the movie? So I, I, I was really paying attention this time. because it's the first time I've watched these two movies back to back. I might have done it back in 99. I went on this crazy uh, Kubrick uh, uh, tear uh, right before film school. I, I, I don't know why, but I get obsessed with things. And I had already loved Kubrick, but I decided to read, I think it was four different uh, biographies about him at the same time. So I was reading them chapter by chapter and re-watching all of his movies in chronological order. And I, and I bought Fear and Desire, which wasn't available at the time, for $200 on VHS tape, which was a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy ridiculous uh worst money i've ever spent because now it's available in good format uh, on youtube he didn't want that his first movie to ever come out 
I didn't want the public to ever see his first movie because it is pretty run of the mill. And uh, so anyways, all that aside, I was really paying attention to the very first scene uh, in which he directed after, you know, uh, giving up the studio system and, and, and breaking out on his own. And it was really interesting to see how he shed all of the excess and weight that is a Hollywood studio system with the big giant Roman uh, empire, you know, coming down on the, on the slaves and uh, how it's just mono a mono. It's just these two guys in this ramshackle uh, house and uh, they're essentially on the battlefield, but it's a, it, instead of, instead of it being an actual giant, uh, you know, acres and acres of land with, with uh, impossible amount of people, it's just two guys uh, on either side of a, um, very messy uh, uh, ping pong table, right? So that's the battlefield, and it's just got drank, half drank drinks, kind of randomly. There's nothing uh, set up about it that would give you any kind of idea that it's like obsessive compulsive, like Kubrick kind of is known to be. But it's just kind of like it's just these two guys. It was very boiled down, it's very distilled, and I think that that was some of that had to have been on purpose. I mean, I'm sure he was thinking this is the first thing that I'm showing since the last thing, and I'm doing it my way. And that was that was very interesting. I never picked up on that. And even to the point that uh, Peter Sellers character, Quilty, yeah. first one of the first lines he gives, he says that he is Spartacus. Yeah. So right. he's drawing he's drawing attention back to it. Right. Do you Which, think uh, that Spartacus line is credited to Kubrick or or uh, credited to Nabokov? What do you think? What do you guys or think? Dalton Trumbo <laughs> or Trumbo <laughs> or, or Peter Sellers? Who knows? Yeah, well, I right. think I think that this it's noted that they said Nabokov like wrote the screenplay to this. But I think what actually remains of his screenplay is very minimal. I think that's oh. pretty much known to be the case. I also wondered, did any of you get this impression? I never got it until I watched it this time. Is there a bit of a Citizen Kane-like knock going at the beginning of this too? This giant palatial, like full of crap, rich guy that's gone off the deep end. I just got this weird feel that he's kind of thrown something to Citizen Kane there too. I mean, obviously the Spartacus <laughs> stuff is there. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't pick up on that, but that's. I don't know. I think I think Kubrick was always kind of uh, anti aristocrats and and uh, you know excess and and I I think that he had more of a communist type of um more communist type beliefs. He probably would have been blacklisted if he stayed in the studio system. <laughs> uh, yeah, even though that sure. was towards the tail tail end of it, he might have brought it all back upon himself. But yeah, he was always taking jabs at uh, uh, you know higher officials and governments. And I don't know if it was a direct. I didn't pick up on that, but what what I did pick up, which is really interesting, because first time I saw this movie, I was fourteen, maybe fifteen. I was Sue Lyon's age, and I remember watching it, thinking, "Wow, she was very attractive," and just kind of living vicariously through this sad older man uh, yep. to me, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And humpered, humpered, and you know, and it was just kind of sad. And then she just kind of blew him off at the end, and it was just I, I kind of felt bad for him because he was kind of pathetic and he cared so much, you know. Because I'm watching it as a fourteen year old. I've seen it a couple times since then. And this is the first time I've seen it as a, I'm pretty much his age now. And I, and I watched it this week and I'm empathizing with him, even though he's a despicable character, but I'm seeing how he's really madly in love with her uh, despite her age difference. And she, you know, she, it was just a fling. It was puppy love for her. And that was striking to me uh, in, in this movie. And it's so interesting how this movie goes down completely different depending on what age you are when you yeah. see it. Yeah, I mean, because you I, matured. You matured. Re- real quick, though, I might disagree that he's madly in love with her. I, I think he's more obsessed with her. This is not This is not like love in the sense of but, I care for you. This is, well, uh, yeah, this is a uh, thing that I need I, to obtain. Okay. I give you that. I absolutely, with the way that he t- treats her like an object, but that's probably the closest this man can ever come to love. What I'm saying yeah. is he cared for her much more intensely than she ever could have to the point that at the end 
she, I mean, she's just oblivious to his pain. Like it just doesn't even, like it didn't even occur to her that, that he might be like, some kind of pain. Keep like, in hey, touch. Hey, you're a pedophile. I don't care. You, you know what? I, I, had a, shit. I had a different read. I, okay. So when I was around your age, Anderson, and I saw this, and then eventually I saw the remake, I was sympathizing with the Humbert Humbert character. Like here's a heartbroken guy. He probably did something bad. Now, huge, really bad. Now, now that I actually have a brain and I'm older, the guy abused a child, basically abused a child. And from that consequence, her mother died tragically. She never was able to go back and see her mom. So this is a, this is a young girl who's actually living a life of trauma that ultimately ends up being further traumatized by another man in Claire Quilty because Claire Quilty wanted to put her in a quote-unquote art film, which is pornography. And so ultimately, I think... Uh, I look at this as a real, you know, it's it's a satire. It's a it's a look like you said, Bruce, on Americana, the destruction of a, the, the moral ambiguity of Americana and the two faced nature of maybe fifties culture. But also, I think it, in many ways, it's it's a look at the abuse of this of this young woman. And ultimately, you know, what's interesting at the end of I don't know Anderson at the end of this movie, it's, it shows that it goes back to the beginning, which you have him the the steps of him about to kill Quilty, but then it ends with. Humbert Humbert died of a coronary thrombosis in jail while waiting for the trial for the murder of Quilty. But they never yeah. put, they never put several months later, Lolita dies of, in child, childbirth. And I wonder, right. I don't know, throwing it to you, Anderson, why, why do you think Kubrick didn't add that Lolita at the end of the Nabokov novel, she dies two months after? Do you guys have a theory? On uh, that? I think it would, I think it would work in a book form. I don't think it would work. I mean, that's a little bit too heavy for like a, a movie to end, especially the way that it ended. And I, while I said empathize, I could see his point of view better as a, as you know, uh, being somebody his age. Uh, I was seeing it through his eyes more than I was seeing it through her eyes because it was her age when I first saw it. So I, I wasn't like my heart wasn't breaking for this guy. I thought it was very very funny uh, yeah. because he was so despicable. But I could see his. I could see from his point of view better than I, I could when I originally saw it, obviously. And if you were to end with two epilogues where one is, you know, about him dying in jail and her dying of childbirth, I think that might have been a little bit too much. Also, I think also I think with uh, if you had her dying during childbirth at that point of the story, it would probably come off as the as the story is punishing her for daring to leave him. Which the way, not, the way it ends right now, not, it's bleak. Yeah. Bleak as can be, but it's it's funny. What he does, he does. He ends movies in bleak ways, but they're they're morbidly funny somehow, right? Yeah. Same with Clockwork Orange. The way Clockwork Orange ends, that's a bleak ending for society, but it's great seeing Alex having so much fun with where he's about to go. Right. All I'm saying uh, is the Jeremy and, Irons. And, oh, go ahead, Anderson. Yeah. And, and as far as like him coming along from what I know from Loveline and 17 years in Loveline. And obviously we know a lot more about uh, childhood trauma and, and, and this kind of thing, sexual abuse. than I think we probably did back in 67. And this is actually uh, at the precipice of probably the most disgusting uh, era in American history. Anyways, as far as uh, childhood hood, um, uh, abuse, which was the seventies with, you know, everything was just sexually open and people were just having orgies in front of their kids and stuff like it got real bad there in the 70s this was kind of at the beginning of that with the whole free love thing but um it, it, she was probably traumatized before uh humbert humbert even came into their lives that's why she was already you know uh, kind of trying to look sexy and get that tan in the backyard i'm not trying to put put blame on the victim here i'm just saying that she was already on that path because of horrible traumas that probably happened to her before the story even began 
Yeah, that's true. And it's just a, a succession of tragedies that happened to Lolita. It's weird I, that I was able to actually look at it from a different vantage point as opposed to the male gaze for most of my life with watching Lolita as, I mean, there's, there's so many different ways that you can look at this movie. And maybe that's the reason why Kubrick wanted to direct it. It's such a very multi-layered storyline. So this, this has nothing to do with uh, the themes of the movie, but it's a, just a little part of Lolita that I really liked was the uh, part where he's in the car and there's a car behind him, but he's having a heart attack, but you don't in movies, even movies that came after this, the heart attacks like, oh, I'm having a heart attack. But they don't do that. Yeah. It's like, ah. you know, he's just kind of he's just kind of doing this thing with his <laughs> arm. They don't even mention it. And then he, him and Lolita are talking. It's like, what, what's up? It's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I shave my arm. It was kind of weird. And then, and then she's like, like, she's like delighted. Oh, I know this. I think you're having a heart attack. <laughs> and she's like, are you feeling, are you feeling nauseous? And it's like, no, not so. Or yeah, however. Eric, right before that, though, was the uh, blowout. And I really hate that shot. I remember hating it every time I've seen this movie because he's yeah. such a perfectionist, Kubrick. And you hear the, the awful sounds, very loud, jarring sounds of the blowout. And then the shot is the camera static on the ground of a car, you know, coming to a stop right in front of the camera. And you can see all four tires are fine. Like not one of the tires has any problems. And that really bothered me. But then right after that was the uh, very realistic heart attack. Yeah. I did so like that, the- so like you said, he's a perfectionist. They did that on purpose. He's like, see all the four tires? This is imperfection because you're about to see perfection coming up. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> well, you know what? My favorite little joke, a little in joke, is the summer camp for the girls, all girls summer camp. <laughs> camp and it climax. just like, camp cl- <laughs> camp climax. I mean, you get away with this in 1962. I don't even know if you get away with this today. Do you guys have any favorite little moments that are just hidden in Lolita you want to share? Uh, the- I really like, um, there's a lot of funny lines. I'll, I'll let Eric go next, but the one line that I, that really struck me as one of the funniest lines is that, um, <laughs> when, um, it's after Shelly Winters and James Mason are a couple now, and she's, keeps trying to like get him into the bed and all this kind of stuff. And there's that whole sequence going on. And, and she goes, she says, I'm like, Humbert, you just touched me. And I go limp like a noodle. It scares me. And he goes like, yeah, I know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, that is so great. Oh my god. Uh pretty much any anytime Peter Sellers is on screen, I was laughing my ass off. Uh especially sure. like uh, when when uh he sits down and he's like, I'm going to kill you. And he grabs a he grabs the 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 half drinking beer and like drinks it. It's like, oh someone put a cigarette button here. That's so unsanitary. I'm like, dude, you're drinking a half drinking beer bottle. It's been sitting yeah. out all night. Uh, yeah, that was funny. My smoke with a gun smoking. in your face. <laughs> Wait, how about the scene? Peter Sellers, when he's pretending to be the cop at the convention with his back turned, that is one of the weirdest fucking monologues I've ever seen. It's oh, that's so well. funny. Yeah. And then what about the uh, the guy at the front desk at the uh, the policeman's? <laughs> that at, really at creepy? Mr. Mr. Swine at the, yeah. uh, the, the policeman's ball. And they yeah, made yeah. sure that like you could see his name placard. He was referred to as Mr. Swine like three times. We get it. His name's Mr. Swine, and he's at the uh, the police. Well, they uh, also ball. had that. They also had that uh, that moment where they were unfolding the bed, and it oh, was God. like a it, it was like a Three Stooges bit. <laughs> yes, and but it works. As I'm watching that, I'm like, dude, this is Kubrick. Like it, he has a <laughs> he has this. He has this mystery about him that's like the most perfect filmmaker ever. You know, like it, 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 everyone's like it, like holding him to this uh, like high esteem, and he's doing a Three Stooges bit in the yeah. middle of a movie about a, a little girl <laughs> that basically gets raped by an older man. Yeah, 
<laughs> but, you, you know what's interesting about that? I, I thought about that too this time because that was really stuck out to me and I had forgotten about that scene. And I think we talk about all the ways that we take Humbert Humbert in this movie and how he's like obsessed and he's in love with her and all this stuff. But I think that that's kind of, that scene is really key because it shows like the tip, the point of view on Humbert Humbert in this movie is he's a buffoon. He's a fool. Yeah. He, he is, he is deluded. He, he is making everything the way he thinks it wants to be in his brain, but he's just an idiot. He really is an idiot. When yeah, you him. Bruce, that's a great point. And I think maybe that wasn't really uh, that evident in, in the final movie. Maybe it is more so in the book, but he may not be attracted to, you know, pre pubescent women or girls uh, because he is a product of, of uh, sexual abuse himself, which is often the case. Like a lot of times kids get, you know, boys get diddled with when they're really young and then that they're just kind of stuck in that age and they can only like girls that are very, very young because that's the only thing that can arouse them. But then there's other guys that just have no game at all and they can't talk to women their own age and they <laughs> can only prey on young girls who don't know any better. And I think that's probably what his character was, but he seemed kind of like a dashing leading man, right? So maybe... Uh, that was a missed opportunity. They could have made him more like a, a Woody Allen without the reputation type guy. And then this might've even been more effective. I mean, it does I sound think, like a cartoon Fox. So obviously kids yeah. are going to be drawn to him. I think that's kind of the point though, is by, by casting this dashing leading man and having him, it plays with your expectations, right? So you yeah. almost, you almost have to like get beyond what you see. Cause everyone, all the, all the um, older women in the movie are all like always hitting on him. They're always like, Oh, Hey, exactly. Let's yeah. Go He's an idiot. <laughs> he's, really he's, cool. he's recoiling. He's physically recoiling from the whole situation. When, when that's it, because he does, he's not attracted to them. They're, I mean, that's that, that's equivalent to him being attracted to. Uh, you know, that'd be, those are his sna- uh, uh, snails, and the only the young girls are the oysters. <laughs> oh, are the oysters? Yes. Like other funny scene, like he gets that whole tour of the house, and he's just trying to find an escape to not rent the house. You know, rent at that house. <laughs> And he goes all the way down and he gets finally gets there and he in that minute he sees Lolita and he's like, Oh, okay, uh, how much was it? And then and the and then Shelly Winter says, she goes like, Well, what was that convinced you? My garden? And that whole scene is just hilarious. No, remember what he says? Remember what he says what the, what the, the kicker was? And it's a shot on Lolita as he says this. I think it was your pie. Your cherry, your cherry <laughs> pie. Cherry pie. Yes, it's that was an amazing so, scene. So fucking out there. It's ridiculous. It's Back to like uh, Sue Lyon being uh, affected by this movie. And it's hard to tell because it was a completely different time, 1962. But I thought it was pretty tasteful. I mean, I remember the first time I saw this, like I, I, the movie ended and I wasn't even sure if they had slept together. I, I had no idea if they were ever, ever, you know, intimate. And obviously now I realize that they were, but uh, they, they were pretty tasteful in the shot. They never had them even embracing. I mean, I, the closest they ever got was when he was on that cot and she was, you know, talking above him and, and you know, grabbed his arm to see what time it was. I mean, they, they weren't ever really seen in the same bed or actually, you know, embracing in any scenes. Oh, yeah. good point. I just, rem- I just yeah, remember, yeah. Eric, I just remember another great moment in there. Is it the drive-in? Oh, when uh, he's sitting between <laughs> the mom and Lolita. And the oh, thing right, happens, right, right. and they both grab his hand, and he like t- takes his hand off hers, puts it on Lolita's, and then she puts her other hand on it, and then the mom puts it on top of all of them, and then all three of them are like, "Oh, that, was, that got weird." That was another. <laughs> that was another scene. I don't. Rem- I don't remember. I didn't remember that. So when I saw that, obviously, I've seen this. This is the fourth time I've seen it, but I did not remember Frankenstein, which I, I think that's what we were looking at, right? Yes, yeah, it wasn't the original Frankenstein. Nowhere. It was Hammer. Was yeah, it's a Hammer movie. And I was like, a Hammer movie is in a Kubrick movie. And that right there is awesome. The Hammer, yeah. all those like Christopher Lee and all that shit, you know. 
And you read so much into every single choice that's made when you're looking at a Kubrick movie. You know you're taken care of as an audience member and they're not just doing things because they, they didn't just say pick a movie and put it up there, make sure it's kind of scary. Like there was there was a uh, thought and intention behind that. And I don't know what that thought or intention was, but uh, you know, it got me thinking and I didn't come up with anything. But like, why would Kubrick choose that clip? Um, the only thing I could think of um is that Hammer was basically the change in was like it kind of was a harbinger of the change in movies in general, right? It was when all of a sudden boobs and blood became part of American, the American movie going experience. So once again, I think it's just another example of in this movie, how he's showing kind of that change you're talking about where you see these little cracks in this fifties version of Americana, like changing. And it's just a way, an excuse for them to be scared at the movies, obviously too. So. Cool. Yeah. This is, you're talking about the cracks and this is, uh for him to be talking about that before the shit really hit the fan uh pretty pretty uh you know prophetic i think uh, as well that and this isn't so much kubrick uh, other than him being drawn to the material but um and the Bakov, uh drawing attention to this and perhaps kubrick because i mean it was a russian novel right and then kubrick's the one who americanized it with the film but uh, i remember not really being aware of that until seeing far from heaven Todd Haynes movie and going oh like that really drew attention long before Mad Men which was uh, you know the decade after but showing that you know the white picket fence and the the happy smiling consumer family is not all that you see on the surface but it's right before like you know family uh, values really started to uh, to uh, decay right 62 Uh, with the uh, Frankenstein thing this is gonna be a stretch but um, Anderson's talking about um predators are often born of uh past um, trauma past trauma that's kind of what frankenstein is some you know something uh born of something uh, uh dr frankenstein builds this monster and then every or, or builds this creature everyone sees him as a monster uh, uh you know what i lost the thread but i think there's something <laughs> there <laughs> i got i got one last thread one last thread before we close out this episode anderson this is uh sort of pretty much a an episode I, I think hatched by our better Eric Holmes about Kubrick. He wanted you to be on the show to talk about your lifelong obsession with Kubrick for our, for listeners. What keeps you obsessed with Stanley Kubrick? You were obsessed since you were a kid, but now it seems I would think most people that that passion would decline as one gets older, but, but it seems you're still right in the thick of things. What keeps you going back to his research and to his work? Well, it's the same thing. You know, once you get kind of locked in on something, especially if there's not going to be anything new from If Cooper continued to make movies, much like Robert De Niro continues to make movies, uh, maybe the, the balloon would have fallen off the rose, right? I, I might have uh, had some decay there with my uh, obsession and love. But since he died, right as his last film was being released, he's kind of frozen. Like in that time, uh, you can never do anything wrong. Uh, and the initial obsession came from, he was a mad, uh, mysterious genius. Uh, who made movies that I responded to and laughed at. And it, that's a good, very good recipe for um, obsession, at least for me, for what I look for in, in artists and, and what I respond to. And if it wasn't for that that very, very dark comedic style that he brought to all of his projects, I wouldn't love him nearly as much as I do. But he's also a shining example of the artist, the auteur doing what the auteur wants to do. And it's so funny because he's probably considered the greatest auteur of all time, but he didn't write his own stuff. What he would do is he would take other people's material and make it his own uh, time and time again, but he never had the balls. And perhaps this is just the business side of things because he was a 
he was a perfectionist and a genius in so many different areas uh, from computers to, uh, to obviously film to stories. Uh, he had the kind of mind where like, usually a really, truly gifted person has one. They excel one with logic, you know, and they're the kind of person that was like an IT guy that you hate at your job because he knows everything about your computer uh, or as opposed to the, the, the creative who, you know, doesn't know anything about uh technical stuff, but can write a really good story or paint a really great painting. And he had it all encompassing. And then you throw the comedy on top of that. He's just perfect. And what I was starting to say is the uncompromising nature of his work, where he could make tweaks to things like Lolita or, or Clockwork Orange or, you know, ultimately what he was going to do with AI is a great example and get more asses in the seats, despite his, uh, you know, he got a lot of people there because of his reputation, but he could have been uh, like a real moneymaker. And he never really was uh, throughout his entire career. He was never thought of as like box office gold. Uh, and it's because he stayed true to his his vision. And I, I as as like the punk rock kid, and, and, and I know Eric and Bruce can uh, appreciate that. Like, you know, just stick with your, your morals and your ethics and believe in what you believe and tell the stories you want to tell rather than sell out to the man. I see Kubrick as being the, the good version of that and Spielberg being the, the bad version of that. And it's funny because they're always being crossed and, and compared. But uh, yeah, Kubrick could, could have been probably the, the biggest uh, commercial success. And what's crazy is that that's what he set out to do. That's what got him in making movies to begin with. To go from still pictures to make motion pictures was he was he, he saw a money making opportunity. But then once he got into it, he uh, I think gave into the perfection of his stories more than he did to the uh, the, the perfection of the box office. True or false, Anderson Cowan? AI would have been a classic movie if it was just a Steven Spielberg film. True or false? I think that might be true. As much as I hate to say oh, is, it. Is that I, right? I, I was joking. That was a joke. Are you kidding me? No, was, no, no. I was, if, if, I was trying to get, get, get a rise out of you. No, buddy. I think if doing? Spielberg didn't have Kubrick in his head and he found that story on his own and he did it, uh, and because Kubrick was good, he was supposed to be making the Aryan papers, which was going to be like uh, his Schindler's List. But then he found out that Spielberg was making Schindler's List, so he gave up. But can you imagine what movie that would have been? Uh, you know, if he made a Holocaust, <laughs> my God, a Kubrick Holocaust movie, we never got it because of fucking Spielberg. But at least it was it was a good movie. But no, if, if Spielberg came across AI, the story of AI on his own and had nothing to do with Kubrick and he just made it. Kubrick, it's, it's a really unfortunate thing because it was Spielberg's hands were kind of uh, shackled with making AI. So he couldn't make a full Spielberg movie, which might have worked. He was trying to make a half Spielberg, half Kubrick movie, which is a Frankenstein movie. And it was awful. And it was it, it doesn't exist in my in my well, wasn't my the- universe. Wouldn't would uh, Anderson? You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought the the whole reason that uh, didn't Kubrick go to Spielberg because the idea was like this seems like it would be a Spielberg movie more than it would be like something I would do. Like there was a lot of back and forth. He was setting up to do it back in the early '90s, and then he saw uh, midnight midnight because he took his time. He really took his time. Kubrick was he's another one of these guys. We're talking about on the last mathematics, Greg. Uh, you know, he was a victim of his own success, I think. And he, I think there was a, a voice in his head saying, you got to outdo yourself. His goal, well, this gets lost a lot, but his goal, especially after uh, Dr. Strange left, he wanted to make the greatest film from each genre. So that's why he did The Shining. And that's why he did 2001. He wanted to make the greatest sci-fi film ever made and then move on and make the greatest horror film ever made. He was looking to... He, to, got, three, uh, he got three of them in Paths of Glory. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, uh, war movie, with, prison movie, and courtroom drama—three of the best <laughs> ones, all in one shot. But he saw uh, uh, Jurassic Park, and he was so secluded at that point, 
and a lot a lot goes into his seclusion and how crazy he was and a lot has come out since then since his death you know from his family members and mainly his wife his daughter actually is a scientologist they lost her to scientology it's kind of tragic she came out here to hollywood years ago and she's a scientologist now but um his uh his wife you know talks about how you know much he cared about the cats and i don't know how many documentaries you've seen on him about how he was crazy yes but he wasn't like uh like this crazy hermit shut in but what was i saying i'm sorry uh, where, where was I going? What were we talking about? I'm, I'm going to take you away. Going oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Ju- Jurassic Park. He saw the dinosaurs and he's like, oh, my God, what I want to do with AI is not we're, we're not nearly there yet. Um, maybe Spielberg would be better. So he started leaning on Spielberg early, but he was still going to make the movie himself, from my understanding. Anderson, before we go, can you work in listeners, viewers, check your stuff out, uh, plug away, please. And, uh, you know, BarryLinden.com, maybe. No, sorry. Hello. Yeah, Barry Linden was just a uh, it was it, it was him just. Uh, ramping up for napoleon which never happened but that was what barry linden was was him just experimenting with various things that he could do it was it wasn't so much a film as it it was a workshop for him i think that's why the movie's no good (laughs) oh very good and we can where can we find groupers your all your other stuff yeah andersonkevin.com uh has all of my projects right there links and you can see the little artwork for have you seen my new website uh yeah i i i'm gonna lie i'm gonna say yes no no i'm kidding (laughs) No, no, your website looks really good, Anderson. I, I, and I promise to, to do some stuff because I, I still have some podcasts from Flicks today. I gotta upload, but it's really good, Anderson. Um, Thanks, before <laughs> yeah, you're, you're the man, we love you. Thank you for joining us, Anderson. Thanks for having uh, Eric, me on, guys. Eric, yeah, very quickly, Eric Bruce. Any final thoughts before we get out of here? You know, the Stanley Kubrick guy is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, very, very astute, Eric Bruce. Okay, we, we always end with you. Say something astute. No, don't make it the end of me. <laughs> end with Anderson. He's, he's oh, the guest. Anderson, we're ending I, with you. I was going to say this. We didn't hear nearly enough from Bruce. Every time I hear Bruce open his mouth, I always learn something or think about something that I never thought about before. And uh, that goes for you too, Eric. But uh, I mainly wanted to say that. I feel like we didn't hear nearly enough from Bruce on this episode. And I blame, I blame me. And thank you. I'm just, I'm just, that's a really, not, really nice thing that you just said about Bruce Anderson. And I'm going to make sure just because uh, I knowing Bruce, I'm just going to cut it out. Okay, guys, we will see you <laughs> next week. Thanks again, Anderson Cowan, AndersonCowan.com for joining us. Check out these Kubrick movies. Tell us what you think. All right, guys. Bye, bye. guys. Bye.